Okay, everybody, open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 13. Today we're in our second week as we're covering chapter 13. Last time, if you joined us, we covered the first 13 verses. And we answered the question last time, are we living in the end times? And if, if you remember, what we basically concluded was, well, we don't know for sure. Every generation has thought that they might be living in the end times. We might be, we might not be. Either way, true believers are going to endure to the end. So Jesus is talking in those first 13 verses about that question. And then today, we're going to kind of look at an associated question. And today, we're going to answer this, what will the end look like? And it's not just, you know, people who study the Bible who ask that question. Actually, we love to ask the question and answer the question via the movies. I mean, think about some of the famous doomsday movies over the years. Uh, Maybe you're into this genre of movie. I actually love this genre of movie. My wife, Tracy, hates it. She thinks this sort of stuff is cheesy. And I admit, usually it is pretty cheesy, but I still love it because I love to see how the secular world handles this topic. You know, what are they saying about the end of the world? You know, doomsday or the apocalypse or post-apocalyptic earth, what is it going to be like? Well, different writers and directors answer that question differently. So I've got a few categories for us today. You know, some people think of climate change. That's kind of a popular thing now that climate change is going to be the thing that changes the whole world and brings the end of the world. So like the Mad Max series, probably the most iconic uh, post-apocalyptic series. You know, the first one came out in 1979. The most recent one was 2015. Basically, it's all about society collapsing because of oil shortage. So I would I would call that climate change. I don't know if they called it that in 1979, but that's certainly what you would call it today. Or how many of you remember the movie The Day After Tomorrow? That was released in 2004. This was one that, again, global climate change creates superstorms and a new ice age. Or one of my favorites, and Tracy hated this one, but I thought it was so interesting. It was famous for for being so expensive to produce, and I don't think it did very well at the box office. The movie was Waterworld that came out in 1995. This is where the whole earth is mostly covered in water again, because of climate change. And so this, you know, this lone drifter is trying to navigate through this world where it's, you know, hard to find any dry land. Anyway, that was interesting to me. It was probably boring to a lot of you listeners. So those were the movies that would be categorized under climate change is going to bring the end of the world. There's another idea out there that is depicted in the movie I Am Legend with Will Smith. This was a 2007 film. I don't know if you remember this one. I watched this one. This is the one where there's a man-made virus. That's interesting, right? When you think about uh, COVID and Wuhan labs and all that stuff. So anyway, go back and watch I Am Legend Legend because that was where humanity turns into like zombie-like creatures because of this man-made virus. That's a little hokier to me, but some writers and directors have imagined maybe that's how the world's going to end. Or how about the asteroid slash comet genre? You know, the people that say that there's going to be this cataclysmic event because an asteroid or a comet is going to just destroy the earth. 
That must have been a popular idea for some reason in 1998 because two movies came out in that year. Armageddon talked about a, an asteroid colliding with the Earth. And then later that year, Deep Impact, that was a film about a comet, you know, bringing on this extinction level event. And then there's just one more category I can think of. Maybe you can think of more in your small groups or with your mentor this week. Maybe you can talk about some other interesting ideas about the end of the world and how it's all going to happen. But the war, the movie War of the Worlds, which was Steven Spielberg's adaptation of, of H.G. Wells' novel, that came out in 2005. And that, that portrays the Earth being invaded by this powerful and destructive army of extraterrestrial beings. Okay, so that one is probably the least likely in terms of you know, what the Bible would say about it. I think you could maybe, I, I would imagine some people could argue for climate change or virus or asteroid slash comet. I'm sure you can find some obscure references in the Bible about those things, but I'm not sure that you're going to find any evidence in the Bible when it comes to like extraterrestrial armies, you know, advancing. I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, but all of this stuff again is sort of the world's attempt at answering the question that we're going to be looking at today, what will the end look like? Because we we don't have to get the answer from movies. We can actually open up our Bibles and we can see what the Bible has to say about it. And so that's what we're going to do today. Mark chapter 13, Jesus himself. Let's take a look at what the Bible is, what, the, what we call in theology, it's called eschatology. So eschatology is the study of the end times. And we're going to be talking today about biblical eschatology, not secular eschatology, not popular eschatology. We're going to talk about biblical eschatology. In fact, we have a whole series on this. I'll put a link to that in the show notes if you want to really take a deep dive on this. But today we're going to talk a little bit about the Antichrist. We're going to talk about the tribulation. Maybe you've heard of some of these terms before. And we're also going to talk about the rapture, because these three things are at least alluded to in the passage that we're going to be studying today. So let's start by reading our first section of Scripture, and I want you to listen for the concept of the Antichrist as I read this. Mark 13, verses 14 to 18, Jesus is saying this, the day is coming when you will see the sacrilegious object that causes desecration. In another translation, it's called the abomination that causes desolation, standing where he should not be. And then in parentheses, Mark says, reader, pay attention. Now, if you have a red letter Bible, you'll notice that those words are in black and these other words are in red. Mark is making like an editor's comment as he's quoting Jesus here. He's saying, I want you to really pay attention to this. And then back to Jesus's words. Then those in Judea must flee to the hills. A person out on the deck of a roof must not go down into the house to pack. A person out in the field must not return even to get a coat. How terrible it will be for pregnant women and for nursing mothers in those days. And pray that your flight will not be in winter. Okay, let's pause there for a second because I want to explain this, this concept of the abomination that causes desolation. When Jesus refers to that here in Mark 13, he also does this in Matthew 24. He's, he's taking the phrase from these references 
in the Old Testament from the book of Daniel. In fact, I'll put a link in the show notes today if you want to take a little bit of a deeper dive on this. We have an article on this at Pursue God entitled, What is the Abomination of Desolation? Let me read from Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, so you can see where this idea first shows up in Scripture. So again, Daniel was a prophet in the Old Testament, and a lot of his writings are tied to some of the apocalyptic or end times, eschatological kinds of ideas from Revelation and Mark 13 and Matthew 24. And here's what Jesus is referring to from Daniel. Again, it's chapter 9, verse 27. Daniel writes, The ruler will make a treaty with the people for a period of one set of seven, but after half this time, and pay attention to this because these words, you know, the number seven and half of seven is going to come into play here in a second when we talk about the tribulation. It's, it says that he will put an end to the sacrifices and offerings, and as a climax to all his terrible deeds, he will set up a sacrilegious object that causes desecration. And then in Daniel 11, verse 31, it talks a little bit more about this. His army will take over the temple fortress. Notice the temple reference here pollute the sanctuary, put a stop to the daily sacrifices, and set up the sacrilegious object that causes desecration. So there it is again. So Daniel 9, Daniel 11. And notice what's happening here. It's related to the temple, which is where Jesus is in Mark chapter 13. So there's this idea of this abomination of desolation that the Jewish people would have heard about all the way back in Daniel's day. They have it in their scriptures, in their Old Testament. Here Jesus is in the temple itself, after having predicted the destruction of the temple, remember, he's about ready to go to the cross, Jesus is, and Jesus is saying here, hey, there's this thing that's going to happen, this abomination that causes desolation. So anyone who understands the prophecies from Daniel, that's what they're thinking about. Now buckle up, because we're about ready to get into the weeds here. I mean, that's what the podcast is for. We can kind of take a deep dive on some of this, and there's a lot to talk about in this particular topic. Okay, so interestingly, something like this had already happened about 200 years before Jesus is talking. In 167 or 168 BCE, before Christ, the, Ma- the, the Maccabean revolt was triggered because there was a Greek king, Antiochus IV, and he attempted to force Hellenistic culture, Jewish, Greek, I mean, Greek culture onto the Jewish people, the Jewish population, the Jewish religion. And one of the things that he did is he went in and desecrated the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. I'll put a link to the article that describes this a little bit more if you're interested. But basically, he set up a statue of Zeus in the temple in Jerusalem, and he demanded that they make sacrifices to the Greek gods. So he was trying to get the Jews to be more Greek, more Hellenistic. And so if you were living in that day, by the way, if you were living in 167 BCE, you would be you would be saying, this is what Daniel was talking about. This is the abomination that causes desolation. It's the, the statue of Zeus in the temple. This is exactly what Daniel was talking about. But clearly it wasn't because Jesus is now talking about it again 200 years later in Mark chapter 13. By the way, an interesting historical note that that whole thing that Antiochus IV Epiphanes did in 167 BC, that triggered this Maccabean revolt. And that was the only time 
that the Jews had political self-rule in Jerusalem between the fall of Jerusalem in 586 BC and the formation of the state of Israel in 1948. So think about that. That, that uh, you know, setting Zeus up in the temple really ticked off the Jews. They revolted. And for a period of time, they had self-rule until, of course, they didn't. And now here Jesus is in the temple again. They're once again not under self-rule. And so Jesus is saying, this whole thing is going to happen again. So what is Jesus talking about, right? What is he talking about? There's three options. The Pillar of New Testament commentary lays them out for us. One option is when the Roman emperor Caligula, um, who was the emperor from 37 AD to 41 AD, so just a few years after Jesus is speaking these words, he did a very similar thing. He tried to erect a statue of himself in the temple of Jerusalem, and he tried to get them to to worship him as a god. So that was, maybe that was one interpretation. Is just a few years later, Caligula does something very similar to Antiochus IV. But that was kind of a short-lived event. It wasn't, it wasn't that that Jesus was talking about, even though maybe some of the Jews or even the disciples at that time might have thought that it was. But actually, a second possibility is, is connected to this guy named Titus. So Titus was the son of a general. He was eventually going to be an emperor. Titus is the one who who famously um, tried to squelch, not just tried to, he, he effectively squelched the Jewish rebellion in 70 AD. Josephus writes about this in his, in his writings in that day. He squelched this Jewish revolt, much like the Maccabean revolt from a couple hundred years earlier. The Jews are revolting once again, and Titus goes in, and in AD 70, he goes into the temple, and he stands in the temple, and he defeat. He doesn't just defeat the Jews and, and squelches the rebellion, but he actually, in the course of that, he actually burns down the temple. Here's what Josephus writes about that. He says, while the holy house was on fire, everything was plundered that came to hand, and 10,000 of those that were caught were slain, nor was there a commiseration of any age or any reverence of gravity, but children and old men and profane persons and priests were all slain in the same manner. So that's how Josephus describes it. And again, we just read what Jesus said. He said, it's going to be a terrible day. Those in Judea are going to flee to the hills. If you're, a, you know, if you're pregnant, it'd be terrible for you. If you're a nursing mother, it'll be terrible for you. You better hope it's not going to happen in winter. So again, many people say that the immediate fulfillment of this prophecy of Jesus is just, you know, if 30, 35 years later in AD 70, when Titus comes in, he's putting down the rebellion in the, in the course of that whole act, military activity, he burns down the temple. And by the way, the temple then would never be rebuilt. So everything that Jesus has been predicting about the temple is sure enough going to happen in the lifetime of all the people who are standing there hearing Jesus's words right here in the temple grounds. So Jesus wasn't talking about Caligula. And he was maybe in part referring to Titus from 70 AD, but there's actually a third option that is related to what we're talking about today. It's, it's the fulfillment of Jesus's words in the end times, right? So 
a lot of times with prophecies, there's a right now fulfillment and there's a future fulfillment that it's partly fulfilled by Titus and the burning down of the temple, but it's also partly fulfilled at the end, you know, it's or the full, the, the complete fulfillment of it is at the end of all days. And to really understand that, you need to understand 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 through 4, where it talks there about the man of lawlessness. So this abomination of desolation, many theologians and commentaries will say that actually the, the man of lawlessness is the abomination of desolation, it's the Antichrist, it's all one in the same figure, one in the same thing. So let me read 2 Thessalonians 2, starting at verse 3 for you, so that you can understand what we're talking about. Paul writes there, he says, For that day will not come until there is a great rebellion against God, and the man of lawlessness is revealed. So again, the man of lawlessness is seems to be the same person that Jesus is talking about when he says this abomination of desolation that's going to set himself up in the temple. So the one who brings destruction is the man of lawlessness. Paul writes, he will exalt himself and defy everything that people call God and every object of worship. He will even sit in the temple of God claiming that he himself is God. So the pillar commentary says it like this, the abomination that causes desolation alludes to the destruction of the temple in AD 70, but it is not exhausted by it. The abomination is a mysterious double referent, a historical medium that anticipates an ultimate fulfillment in the advent of the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, and the final tribulation before the return of the Son of Man. Now, I know that was a mouthful, but basically what that's saying is there's an already component to that that's going to happen in Jesus's day, but then there's a future component to it, and that's what we study when we study biblical eschatology. Now, that moves us on to the next big word for today's topic, and the next word is the tribulation, because Jesus goes on to say this, Mark 13, starting in verse 19, for there will be a greater anguish in those days than at any time since God created the world. And it will never be so great again. So again, think about this in terms of two things. You know, for the people in Jerusalem in AD 70, that was happening. But I think for us, it is still yet to come because there's this double referent. It's referencing what happened already in AD 70, but it's also referencing what is going to happen at the end of the world. Jesus goes on, in fact, unless the Lord shortens that time of calamity, not a single person will survive. But for the sake of his chosen ones, he has shortened those days. And then if anyone tells you, look, here is the Messiah, or there he is, don't believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will rise up and perform signs and wonders so as to deceive, if possible, even God's chosen ones. Watch out, Jesus says. I have warned you about this ahead of time. Okay, so Jesus is talking here about this thing that we now call the tribulation. Okay, the, the tribulation is this period of really intense suffering and persecution that is described in Daniel 9, in Revelation, even in 
2 Thessalonians. Now, this is where that number seven comes in for a lot of people. So the the idea of a seven-year tribulation comes from that Daniel 9, 27 verse I read about the one week, where there's one week, which some people say is a period of seven, not seven days, but seven years. So if you've ever heard of people that talk about the seven years of tribulation, that's what they're talking about. That's where they're getting it from. Now, I'll put a link in the show notes below to a topic where we dive into this some more on our podcast uh, about the tribulation, about the Antichrist. But the basic idea is a lot of people say, okay, there's this terrible tribulation, but it's going to be really bad in the second half, in the back half, the last three and a half years. Again, if you're looking at it literally, and not not everyone does, some people, some people take some of these things and consider it to be more symbolic than literal. But for those who interpret all this stuff literally, they would say there's a seven-year tribulation split into two halves, and the back half is the really, really bad part. More on that in a little bit. Now, here's one of the big questions when it comes to the tribulation. Will Christians be here for it? Will we be here for the tribulation? Or is God going to take us away before all of this terrible stuff that Jesus is talking about in Mark 13 and that you're seeing referred to in other places in Scripture? And that that question relates to the third concept for today, and it's the concept of the rapture. Now, let me read you the passage here, as we finish up in Mark, in our section from Mark 13, starting in verse 24, Jesus says this, At that time, after the anguish of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will give no light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then everyone will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with great power and glory, And he will send out his angels to gather his chosen ones from all over the world, from the farthest ends of earth and heaven. So that last part right there seems to be referring to what we call the rapture. The rapture is when when Jesus comes back and takes away his church. He brings believers with him into the air. We'll we'll give you some scripture for this. Again, it's a really strange sounding idea if you've never read the Bible before, if you're new to Christianity. The rapture, interesting, is not something that any Christian debates. It's very clear in scripture that Jesus is going to come back and he's going to gather his chosen ones, like it says right here in verse 27. The question is, when is he going to do that? When is he going to come and gather his chosen ones? Is it going to be before the tribulation? after the tribulation, or somewhere sort of like in the middle of the tribulation. Now, before we answer that question, let me just show you where this idea comes from in the Bible. We first see it in Daniel 7, verse 13. Daniel writes, as my vision continued that night, I saw someone like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. Okay, so that's the Old Testament kind of reference to this return of Jesus. And then Paul in 1st, Thessalonians 4, he gets into some more detail here. He says this, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. First, the believers who have died will rise from their graves. Then, together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then we will be with the Lord forever. 
again, this sounds really weird to the uninitiated, but this is what Jesus is talking about when he says that everyone will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with great power and glory. He's talking about his second coming, which is connected to the rapture, that the rapture is when Jesus takes up, 1 Thessalonians 4, when he takes up the believers, those who have died and those who are still alive when he comes, and he takes them away. So the question is, if all that strange stuff is going to happen, the question is, is it going to happen before the tribulation that Jesus is talking about, all this terrible stuff that's going to happen? Is it going to happen after the tribulation, or is it going to happen at the midway point? And those are the three views, and we talk about this in a full topic uh, in fact, I'll put a link to this topic below where we dive into all of these different details. But let me just tell you the three options and the words that go along with it. The first one is called the pre-trib rapture, and that position holds that that Jesus is going to take us up. He's going to take all the Christians up before the tribulation happens, before that seven-year tribulation, so we don't have to endure any of it. That's called the pre-trib rapture. Probably most Christians believe that perspective in America today, even though it's kind of a, a little bit of a newer idea, like in terms of the last 100 years, 150 years, it's probably what you would have read about if you read the Left Behind series or you know, if you've gotten into any of, any of the Christian movies around the idea of the end times, then you probably would buy into the pre-trib viewpoint. Now, the second viewpoint, the second option is called the pre-wrath rapture, and here's why it's called pre-wrath. These people believe that the tribulation falls into these two parts. So the first part, the first three and a half years is when God's people get persecuted. The last three and a half years is when it's really bad, and that's when God's wrath comes onto the world. And so if you believe in the pre-wrath rapture, what you're saying is, Christians are here for the first half, but God takes them up because, because, they, because believers, followers of Jesus, do not have to experience the wrath of God. That doesn't seem to make sense that Christians would have to experience the wrath of God. So they view it as kind of the midpoint is when the man of lawlessness desecrates the temple. It's when the Antichrist comes in and desecrates the temple, which, by the way, is why a lot of people who study this kind of stuff believe that Israel has to be a state, that the temple needs to be rebuilt because the temple isn't rebuilt yet. So people who who study this stuff and take it very literally, they would say that the, that Israel plays in prominently to all of this prophecy that we're talking about because there has to be a temple in order for the man of lawlessness to desecrate it at the end of the age. Okay, so anyway, that's I don't mean to jump into the weeds too much here. Again, you can listen to the fuller podcast on this. I'll put a link to this down below. But that's the pre-wrath rapture view. So there's a pre-trib rapture that says that that Jesus takes up his all of his followers before any of that crazy stuff happens. The pre-wrath rapture, which says that it's going to happen at the midpoint, so they don't have to really experience the full wrath of God. And then there's the post-tribbers, people who say that that no, Jesus is going to take people away after the seven-year tribulation, that even Christians have to endure it. Now, proponents of this view acknowledge that believers are exempt from God's wrath. You can see Romans 5 verse 9, 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 10 for that. 
But what they would say is that this promise doesn't require that Christians be physically absent. So they're not going to experience the full wrath of God, but they're still going to experience persecution, even martyrdom in, in this tribulation period. So they would say, hey, look, God spared Noah from his judgment on humanity during the flood. Or even Isaiah 26 portrays a situation where people escape God's judgment without being re- removed. So again, so much of this, you kind of have to get into the weeds on some of your some of your belief, some of your understanding. But so much of this then is taking passages like Mark 13, Matthew 24, the Daniel passages, passages from Revelation, passages from First and Second Thessalonians, and putting it all together. Again, we're, we're not giving this nearly enough time to really help you to understand these different positions, but they're putting it all together to answer the question, are Christians going to be there at the end of the world? You know, specifically for the tribulation part of this whole picture. So what we see in popular movies about this is not, I mean, it's interesting, it's fun to watch, but really the bigger thing is to look at this and say, what does God's word say about the end times? What are the end times going to really be like? And so Mark doesn't give all the answers. Matthew actually gives a lot more than Mark does. But Mark is hitting some of these high points that I think we today as Christians really need to, we need to wrestle with, we need to try to understand. Um, and, and we need to, I mean, wherever you land on this, pre-trib, pre-wrath, post-trib, and there's even more options, by the way. If you check out our eschatology series, we get into all the, the millennialism, amillennialism, premillennialism. There's so much more to the debate. Again, it, for some of you who aren't that interested in this kind of stuff, you're probably tuning this out already. But a lot of you are like super interested. My encouragement to you is, is listen to all those podcasts. Really try to have an understanding of the issues before you make your decision as to where you're going to stand on all this. But I want to end this particular podcast by just sort of zooming out and focusing in on what Jesus is saying here at the end of our passage. You know, because this whole thing, maybe some of you have a lot of anxiety right now. Maybe some of you are feeling anxious about the end of the world. And the end of the world is a real thing. It's not just a movie thing. It's a real thing according to the Bible. We can't say exactly how it's all going to look, but it's going to be bad. That's what Jesus is saying. It's going to be bad. It's going to be, there's going to be persecution and tribulation. It's going to be frightening. It's going to be horrible. But here's, here's what I want to read to end, because I want to leave on a real positive note, because I think that's what Mark does for us in this passage. We already read this, but I want to read it again. After he says all this terrible stuff, he like pivots and he says, then, then, Everyone will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with great power and glory. When, when, whenever it talks about the clouds in the Old Testament, a lot of times it's talking about God revealing himself, like there was a cloud that descended upon the temple. And when God's Holy Spirit left the temple in the Old Testament, a cloud went away from the temple. So whenever you see the word cloud in, in relationship to all this stuff, you're talking about God's presence. And so he says, everyone's going to see God's presence the Son of Man, Jesus, coming with great power and glory. And I love what it says here. He'll send out his angels to gather his chosen ones from all over the world, from the farthest ends of the earth and heaven. 
this is good news. Like the story ends with Jesus winning. The story ends where it's not about the temple. It's not about even Israel or the Jews. The story ends where he's gathering all of his chosen ones from all the nations, anyone, anyone who has responded in faith to Jesus. Everyone gets to be a part of the, of the, of the good stuff at the end of, end of the end times. There's bad stuff in the end times, the tribulation, wrath, persecution. But in this section, Mark is ending on a different tone. He's ending on the good stuff. That's why in 1 Thessalonians 4, when Paul is describing everyone being caught up in the air and being with the Lord forever, verse 18 at the end of that passage, I love this. It says, so encourage each other with these words. You know, when we read this stuff, when we consider the end of the world from a biblical perspective, if you're a follower of Jesus, the end of it should bring a smile to your face. <laughs> the end of it should encourage you. Uh, you know, in the middle of it, when you're studying it, when you're looking, when you're watching the news right now, what's going on in, in uh, Gaza and in Israel, it's scary. I mean, really, it, it causes you to ask the question, are we in the end times? Man, it sure seems like we are. What's it going to be like? What's the tribulation going to be like? Are Christians going to have to endure all of that? Wherever you land on all of that, at the end of the story, we should encourage one another with these words. At the end of the picture, we see that Jesus wins. We see that, that good triumphs over evil, even though in this world right now, man, it seems like evil is winning most of the time. And this picture in Mark 13, where the sun is darkened and the moon give, gives no light and the stars fall from the sky, all that stuff. By the way, maybe that's where, <laughs> that's where people say comets are going to destroy everything. I just thought of that right now. But the picture that we have there gives way to this picture of the Son of Man coming with glory and power and like the clouds. All of a sudden now, like we see light and hope. And it kind of reminds me of chapter one. You remember in chapter one where, where Jesus comes to a leper? This was a long time ago now when we studied Mark chapter one, but Jesus comes to a leper and the leper has all this disease, leprosy that's so contagious. And when Jesus touches him, which is totally unthinkable that someone would touch a leper because of how contagious it is, we see that, that Jesus's goodness overcomes the leper's uncleanness. And that's a that's a personal story of what we see now on a cosmic level in Mark chapter 13. So in Mark chapter 1, it's like a, like a personal transformation for this leper. But in Mark 13, we see like a cosmic transformation. I mean, the, the whole earth was, was like in, in bad shape. Ever since the fall of the world, the earth has been in bad shape. The world is like the earth is groaning for Jesus to come back. And here we have him, Mark 13, Jesus is coming back. And all of a sudden now on this cosmic level, we have this, this darkness and this gloom and this persecution giving way to the touch of Jesus on a cosmic level. And Jesus brings light and power, and glory. And at the end of the day, Jesus gathers all of his believers to himself, and Jesus wins. And the victory is not some like earthly military victory like the Jews were expecting from the Messiah. 
And it's not about the temple. It's not even about the Jews or Israel. It's about when Jesus returns in the clouds, it's just about Jesus. That's what you see. That's what we'll see. That's what the whole world will see. We'll just see Jesus. We'll just be left with Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of Man, the victor, God himself, Jesus. And I love how the Pillar New Testament commentary summarizes all of this. I want to read this for you. I think this is just so powerful. It's such a great summary of everything we've been studying in today's episode. The grand finale of the gospel preached by Jesus is that there is a sure hope for the future. It is grounded not in history or logic or intuition, but in the word of Jesus. There's a striking contrast between the vast cosmic array of the particularity of the Son of Man. The elect are as widespread and diverse as all creation, but they converge at a single point, the Son of Man. Jesus is the focal point of divine redemption. So I don't know when you listen to this podcast, I don't know what you're thinking about when you think about the end times, but I want to call you, I want to encourage you to think about Jesus. And in particular, one of the questions that we've been asking throughout this study of the Gospel of Mark, what do you think about Jesus? And have you responded personally to the offer of salvation that is found only in Jesus? Because if you have trusted Jesus for salvation, that is how you can be saved. That's how you can read all of this stuff and not have anxiety, because you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are on the side of Jesus if and when this day comes in your lifetime. You can know that you are on the side of Jesus, not based on your good works, not based on your ability to keep a list of rules. It's not about religion. It's not about temples. It's about faith. If you have trusted in Jesus, if you have placed your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, the Bible says you will be saved. And that's something that every individual has to decide for on their own. Your spouse can't decide for you. Kids, your parents can't decide for you. Every individual gets the opportunity to make a decision for or against Jesus. And here's the thing. You've got to decide before the end comes. You know, if the end doesn't come in your lifetime, if the end of the world that we're talking about here doesn't come in your lifetime, and it probably won't, it might not. Every generation thinks it will, but it doesn't. It hasn't yet come. If the end of the world doesn't come in your lifetime, the end of your world will come when you die. Everyone's going to die. And when you die, that's it. Like the decision you made for or against Jesus stands as a verdict over your eternal destiny. If you trusted in Jesus for salvation, you will be saved and you, you have nothing to be afraid of. If you failed to trust in Jesus for salvation, if you just kept putting it off and you never trusted in Jesus for salvation, then you will die in your sins and you will experience the wrath of God. That might sound really harsh, but that is what the Bible teaches. So the question for you today, really, the, the biggest question is not what we've been talking about, what will the end look like? The biggest question is, am I ready for the end? Have I trusted in Jesus for salvation so that I don't have to be afraid? I don't have to have anxiety over any of this. And if you want to do that today, I want to encourage you to just 
turn off this audio and on your own or with a friend, with a Christian friend, I encourage you to trust Jesus for salvation. A simple way to do that is just to pray a simple prayer, something like this. Just say, Jesus, I recognize I'm broken. I recognize I'm against you. I recognize I'm a child of wrath by nature. I recognize that all this bad stuff that's happening should happen to me. But because Jesus, you died on the cross for my sins, I can avoid it. And so today I trust in the work of Jesus on the cross to save me. I place my faith in the work of Jesus and I say thank you for your forgiveness and for the freedom that you and you alone can offer me. And I receive that gift of salvation today. In Jesus' name, amen. Now listen, if you prayed a prayer like that for the first time, I want to encourage you, this is really important, I want to encourage you to go find a Christian friend who can disciple you, who can walk with you. Because it's not enough that you pray a prayer one time and feel like I've got this get out of hell free card, you know, avoid the wrath of God. I mean, it's true that you will based on your faith, but man, the Christian life is so much more than praying a simple prayer like that. That is the beginning of a new life. It's not the end. It's not just the end of an old life. And we talk all about all of that in our 12-week series called The Pursuit. I'll put a link to that down below. But most importantly, I encourage you to find a small group, find a Christian friend who can walk with you through that so that you really can understand, you can kind of backfill everything. You know, this today we're just talking about the end of all things. Man, there's so much for you to learn about how it all started and why we can trust the Bible and what sin really is and who Jesus really is and and what it means to be a new creation in Christ and how we should read our Bibles and and what it means to be, you know, a, what we call a full circle follower of Jesus. We talk about all of that in our 12-week series called The Pursuit. I'll put a link to it down below because if, if you're ready to follow Jesus now, I mean, if you are ready now for the rapture, that's awesome. But there is so much more that Jesus wants you to experience And you don't have to wait till the end of all times to experience the full life that Jesus has for you in him.